Okay, um, thank you for inviting me here. It's, it's glad um, to have this opportunity. Um, just so you know, I'm having a wonderful time at Ohio State University. Um, everybody's. This is this is the mic. Can can you hear me? A little bit soft. A little bit soft. Kathy. <laughs> just move it up. Is that any better? Is that better? Okay. Um, I'm having a wonderful time here at Ohio State University um, teaching courses, and the students are wonderful. Um, the university has treated me extremely well, so thank you all for having me here. Um, what I'm going to talk to you about today is a little bit about what the CAA is really like, um, what we do, and hopefully I'd like to um, explode a few myths about us that are running around. Um, for example, one of the, my students came up and confessed to me several weeks into the quarter. Um, she confessed to me that when she first saw me on the first day of classes, her immediate re reaction was that, oh, we must have a substitute today. <laughs> she was um, expecting somebody larger, <laughs> um, probably male, dressed all in black suit and everything. Um, so I was not at all what she expected. Um, so hopefully we can dispel some of the myths that you all have about the agency and what we do. Um, I'm going to start by giving you some of my background, explaining how did I end up working at the CIA, um, some of the things that I've done while employed there, um, and then a little bit about what the agency is and what we do. Um, first, however, I'd like to explain that although I am here at Ohio State under the auspices of the CIA, the CIA, the CIA has absolutely no connection with what I teach. They do not review my syllabus. They do not tell me what readings to use. They have absolutely no input into what I teach here at Ohio State. Um, so what that also means is that when we get to the discussion session, um, any opinions that I um, exhibit are mine alone and should not be imputed to the CIA as a whole. They are only my own opinions. Um, also, I encourage a lot of questions if I do not know the answer to your question, I will say exactly that. If I do know the answer, but the information is classified and I cannot tell you, I will tell you exactly that, just so we know where we all stand. Um, and although the government uses a lot of acronyms, I will try not to do that this morning. Um, if I do make a mistake and use an acronym that I haven't explained, just you know, raise your hand and yell and, and we'll, we'll clear that up. I don't want you to be um, misunderstanding what I'm talking about. So how did a nice person like me end up working for the CIA? Um, as, as John said, I got my BA um, in Russian language and literature from Cornell University. Um, I then spent the next 20 years doing other things that had nothing at all to do with Russian language. Um, when I came to the CIA, it's I think my third or fourth career around. Um, so I did other things for about 20 years. I then decided to go back to school. I wanted to get a master's in something to get back into things. Um, and I decided to continue with the Russian, um, and I got a master's in Soviet studies. This was in 1989, just as the Soviet Union was falling apart. So my timing was not real good on that particular issue. Um, so I was looking around, what do you do in the real world with a degree in Soviet studies? I didn't want to go into academia. I'm a little bit too practical a person for that. So I go, what do you do? Um, and at that time, I was thinking about this, a CAA recruiter came through. Um, I actually never met her, but I did see some of the flyers she left talking about CIA analysis and what analysts do. So I read that material, and I decided not only do I have those skills, can I do that kind of stuff, but I love to do that. I love to read a lot, figure out what's going on in the world, and write about it. 
and that's basically what an analyst does. And we'll get into more details in a little bit. So I applied to the agency, and I was accepted, largely because of my skills in Russian and my understanding of the Soviet Union and Russia. At first, they wanted me to work on economic issues. That's where they needed my skills the most. Um, I had no background in economics. So the first thing they did after I went through our, our initial training program is they asked me to go to school and take some um, economic courses. So I did that. Um, we do all kinds of things like that. We really like people to increase their skills. Um, in my case, we have an arrangement with the University of Virginia, and they actually teach a number of courses in our building at the end of the day, which makes it really convenient. Um, so I took um, several graduate-level courses in economics just so I would have the theoretical underpinning um, that would make my work a little bit better. So I worked on economic issues for a few years. Um, then I moved over and started working on political issues. Um, and I worked at that point on what we called Russia's regions, which is everything except Moscow. That's a lot of territory. Um, and there was a lot going on. Again, this is early to mid-90s. Um, a lot was going on. Um, we were thinking about, you know, some areas were trying to secede. We had some problems in an area called Chechnya. Um, we were looking at relations between Moscow and the regions. Um, so it was quite interesting. Um, also, the Russians at that point in time were starting to um, use some polling data to do survey research of their own, um, which you could go out and buy publicly, which we did. Um, and so that I would have the skills to be able to interpret their data, um, they sent me for a summer to that other school up north of here <laughs> um, to learn survey research techniques. And that was so that if I was using one of the Russian polls to look at what the people were thinking, I would know a good question from a bad question. I would know how to interpret and use the data. Um, so that's why we did it that way. In the course of my work as an analyst, I have um, had a number of what we call rotations. We sometimes call them out-of-body experiences, um, where we have to go and spend some time in another agency within or outside even of the intelligence community. Um, and these are so that we get a feel for what the policymaking community is like, we get a feel for what the rest of the government is like, so that we don't become too insular. And in fact, now in the CIA and actually across the whole intelligence community, if you want to rise to the highest levels, you have to have one of these experiences. So I spent six months up at the National Security Agency. This is the one that, that collects information, signals information um, electronically um, from overseas. I was using my Russian language skills doing that. Um, I spent a, while, a few months working at State Department headquarters in Washington, D.C. Um, I was the intelligence rep to the what was called then the ambassador in charge of the newly independent states. I don't know if any of you remember this formulation. It was a State Department euphemism for the former Soviet Union. Um, not quite sure why, but then I'm not a diplomat, why they had to use that formulation, but they did. So I spent a few months doing that. Uh, I also got to spend several tours overseas in, in Moscow, a couple of short ones, um, and then a longer one of seven weeks, and then a longer one of three months. Um, for anybody who studied Russian, who, who's, whose field is Russia, that, that was about as good as it got. Um, when I was there for my three months, didn't, first of all, it was over the winter, so I got to say, you know, I survived the Russian winter. Um, and I was working as a State Department officer. I was on loan to the State Department, and they were having elections that winter. And because I was working for the State Department, I got to be named as a, um, an election observer. So I got to go to the polling places, see how they ran their election. 
Um, for somebody who looks, lives and, and breathes Russian politics, that was, that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, I also got to live in an apartment out on the, the economy. I commuted to work on the subway like all the other 9 million Muscovites. Um, so it was a really, really fun experience. Along the way, I moved into management and started managing groups of other analysts. We have two tracks. You can either stay and, stay and become what we call a senior analyst, or you can become a manager of other analysts. <clears throat> and in both ways, you can still rise to the very top levels. So there I was, very happy, working my field of expertise. This is my comfort zone, doing good stuff. The administration was always interested in what's going on with Russia, so we had a lot of interaction with the policymakers. And then 9-11 came along. And I, along with a lot of other people in the agency, raised my hand and said, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. What do you want me to do? Three days later, I was in charge of a group of counterterrorism analysts. And our job was to actually delve into and look at the events of 9-11, figure out how did they pull it off, how do they get the money, all those kinds of things about how they actually pulled it off, and see what lessons we could learn from it, how to prevent it from happening again. So that's what I did. Um, once we had done the basics of that, um, we then started working on homeland security kinds of issues. Um, I was one of the um, two units that started what's now called the National Counterterrorism Center. My unit there, and you might find this interesting, um, was half CIA analysts and half FBI, um, which was very interesting. We really enjoyed working together. Um, our job was to help prevent threats, <coughs> and help prevent incidents, and we did actually work on the threat matrix. There really is such a thing as the threat matrix. Um, and if you want to know more about that, we can talk about that during the Q&A. Um, so that's what I was doing. At one point, I again got loaned out, um, this time to the White House for a short time, um, as the intelligence representative to Governor Ridge, who was running what was then the Office of Homeland Security out of the White House. Um, I was there just over a week. And as far as I was concerned, that was plenty. <laughs> the White House is a very strange place. And it has nothing to do with this administration. It's just a very strange place. Everything is first priority, most urgent, has to be done immediately. And what that means, of course, is that nothing is first priority. So it, it's just a very crazy place. Um, I did, however, get taken on a private tour of the White House. Um, including the place down in the basement where you can see where the walls are still blackened from when the British tried to burn it in 1812. Sorry, Tony. <laughs> um, so that was kind of fun, but a, a week was plenty. As you can imagine, working on counterterrorism issues, particularly the homeland security kinds of issues, is quite stressful. Um, we were working six days a week, always had to come in on the weekend, long days, um, this threat matrix that I was telling you about, um, we had what we call video conferences where all the parts of the intelligence community got together um, on a secure video conference twice a day at 7 a.m. and 3 p.m. Um, so if you're going to have a video conference talking about what happened overnight, obviously you have to get there like 6 in the morning. So long, long days working every weekend, um, and after a while that, that kind of gets to you. Um, so what we like to do in the agency is we don't want people to burn out and leave. If they're getting either bored or too stressed out with their current job or whatever, there are always other jobs to look for within the agency. Um, so that's what I did. I looked around, and lo and behold, I ended up here at Ohio State University teaching courses on intelligence. Um, and I must admit, again, having a wonderful time. 
So my career, and that's been my career here so far, um, that's fairly typical for a CIA analyst or for any CIA employee, as a matter of fact. We do move around a lot these days. Um, one of the things that I like to say is one of the, my colleagues, when I first joined the CIA doing economics, she had been working on Soviet grain estimates for 25 years. Okay? She was the world expert. We can't do that anymore. The world is changing too rapidly. We need people who can move around and put their skills against whatever target issue it is that we need. Um, so we do need people to move around a lot, and that's why I've had all these various experiences. Um, it also keeps it from getting boring. If I had done what she did, I, I think I would have left after about 10 years, because that gets pretty boring doing the same thing all the time. So let's move on, um, and during the Q&A, you can ask me more questions about any of my background if you want to. Um, let's move on and discuss what the CIA is and what it does. The CIA was created by the National Security Act of 1947, um, and it, it was shaped by two events, the Cold War and Pearl Harbor. That's what made this, the, um, the agency what it is. That's what made the um, intelligence community the way it is today. Before I go further, I'd like to explain also what the CIA is not. We are not a policy-making organization. We do not make U.S. policy. We just try to give the policymakers the best information we can so that they can make informed decisions. They're the ones who make the decisions. We are not law enforcement. I don't wear a gun, you know, nothing like that. We don't arrest people. Um, if we need to have somebody arrested, then the FBI does that. And also, we are not a domestic intelligence agency. We are foreign. We look outside the United States. Um, if there is an issue, if we're following a thread outside the United States, particularly in terrorism, which is what I'm talking about mostly, um, if we're following a thread outside the United States that leads within the United States, then the FBI picks up that part of it. We do not have any powers to work within the United States. The mission of the CIA, and you can read it on the website. We have a brand new website up this week. We've had an old one for a while, but they put up a brand new one this week. The mission is to collect information that reveals the plans, intentions, and capabilities of our adversaries and provides the basis for decision and action. To produce timely analysis that provides insight, warning, and opportunity to the president and other decision makers charged with protecting U.S. interests and to conduct covert action at the direction of the president. And we'll get to that one in a little bit, because that one is always an issue. Um, so that's the mission. That is what we're supposed to do. Um, the CIA is composed of four parts called directorates, or at least most of them are. The names change every now and then. This is the government. You know, we change things. But the mission and the tasks do not change much. The first part is what we call the directorate of administration or support. Um, this is the same as any other large organization. We have the same needs. Um, we need payroll people. We need personnel people. We need auditors. We need finance people, all that kind of stuff. Um, we also have quite a few lawyers on staff um, to make sure that we're not you know, crossing the line. Um, we have a lot of graphic designers because when we produce papers and so forth, we, need, we try to have a lot of graphics along with it to get the idea across to the policymaker. 
Um, we have our own printing plant, so we have all those people. We have our own clinic, all those kinds of things. But the same thing that any large corporation like Xerox or somebody might have, same kinds of support. And these people help the rest of us do our job. We also, I might add, have now have a Starbucks in the cafeteria. Um, I have been told, I, I cannot verify this for myself, but I've been told that that particular Starbucks outlet sells more gallons of coffee per day than any other outlet in the United States. I would not be surprised. So we have all those folks to help us do our job. Then we have the Directorate of Science and Technology, the S&T folks. For those of you who are James Bond fans, this is Q. Um, they do make little spy widgets of all sorts um, and disguises. And we can talk about disguises in the Q&A if you want to. Or if anybody wants me to right now, we can talk about disguises because it's really interesting. Anybody want to hear about disguises? Yeah, okay. Um, just just a, a little diversion, just because it's, it's really interesting. Um, if you think about it, if you're walking down the street, you can see somebody you know, 50 yards away walking in the other direction, and you recognize them. And how do you do that? You recognize their outline. What you're really recognizing is the way they hold their body and the way they walk. We've all had the experience of somebody coming in, somebody that we know really well, and a, you know, a guy comes into the office one day, and we all look at him and say, you know, what happened? Something's changed, but we don't know what. And it's because he used to have a full beard and mustache, and he shaved them all off. But you don't recognize that. When we look at faces, we see what we think we're going to see. So it's not really faces that we recognize. So in order to make a really good disguise, all you have to really do is change the face a little bit, maybe change the hair color, but you need to change the way somebody walks. And you do this, you put a lift in one shoe. Changes the way somebody holds their body and walks. If somebody is round-shouldered, you give them a brace to make them stand up straight. If they stand up straight, you give them something that makes them round-shouldered. Just very slight variations on that, and you will not recognize the person. And it's really, really interesting. And, and they, they have a lot of fun doing that. Um, we also have, they have a lot of people um, who do have things like degrees in, in you know, theater costuming to help make with some disguises. But we don't do the thing with the masks like in Mission Impossible. No, we don't do that. <laughs> there are much easier ways of disguising somebody. So that's just a little digression. Um, the science and technology folks also do a lot of work on things like weapons. Um, they will reverse engineer a weapon that we capture from somebody else, trying to figure out what are its capabilities, you know, how far can this particular missile go, how much of a payload, all those kinds of things. Um, they work on technology transfer issues um, and a lot of technical things like that, about which I know very little, since I am not a te technical person. Um, also, if we need either a hardware or software application that is not available publicly, um, they will devise that for us. Um, or they'll take something public av publicly available and tweak it for us to make it suit our needs. So they do those kinds of things, and that's what the science and technology folks do. The third section of the CIA is what used to be called the Directorate of Operations. Some of, some of you may recognize it as DO. It's now called the National Clandestine Service. And the CIA is now directs all the clandestine operations from anywhere within the government, including Department of Defense. Um, the clandestine service is where James Bond would live if he were American. Um, and James Bond, by the way, is an absolutely terrible 
clandestine agent. Absolutely terrible. He runs around. He does all kinds of things he's not supposed to do. He gets in trouble. Everybody knows who he is. Okay, that is a terrible agent. The best clandestine agents are the ones that you would never, ever notice. Women, for example, make really good clandestine agents because particularly in some parts of the world, they're ignored. They can do anything. And the best ones are pregnant women or women with little kids because nobody ever thinks they're up to anything no good. <laughs> Just that's the way people think. So they make really good agents. The clandestine service is only one part of the agency and not the largest. I can't give you numbers, but not the largest. Um, but they give us 90% of our public problems. That's where all the public problems come from. Their main job is to collect human intelligence, what's called human in the trade. They infiltrate into organizations, they recruit sources, they get information that the U.S. government needs to protect national security. And a note here that sources, the people that they have to recruit, are not always nice people. We had a problem with this a while ago. One president, it might have been Carter, I might have that wrong, decided that we were no longer going to recruit what we call dirty sources. And the same went for the FBI. They were no longer able to recruit like bank robbers to talk about bank robbery. Um, we lost a lot of information when that happened. If you need somebody to find out information about what's going on within a terrorist cell, you need to talk to terrorists or people who are close to terrorists. You just have to do it. It doesn't mean that the U.S. agent can actually do any of those activities, or at least not the real bad ones, but you do have to talk to those people because that's how you're going to get the information. It's the same with the FBI. If you want to find information about an organized crime group, you have to talk to criminals. It's just the bottom line. Um, and just a semantics note here, CIA officers are not spies. We recruit spies. There's a difference. A spy, and we have actually had some spies, Hanson and Ames and guys like that, those are spies. Um, a spy is somebody who gives away his country's secrets. So we are not the spies. We recruit the spies. Spy is the same thing as a source. You can see it that way too, just to clear that up a little bit. Another job of the clandestine service is what we call covert action. And this is where all the problems come from. Um, this is now only done under what's called a presidential finding. The president has to ask for a covert action, and he has to sign off on it. Didn't used to be the case, but this is the case now. He has to sign off on a covert action. Um, if the plan changes along the way, he has to sign off on the new plan. Covert action also has to be briefed to the congressional oversight committees, the one in the House and the one in the Senate. Um, not necessarily, if it's a very, very secret one, not necessarily all the members, but certainly at least the ranking members on both, of both parties on each committee have to be told about covert action. And just again, the, the CIA, we're not the, we, we carry out the covert action. We're not necessarily the ones who just go out and do something because we think it needs to be done. The president always has to ask. Um, covert action in and of itself is an issue for us, not just the, the ethics of doing those, and we can certainly debate that, um, but 
except for the covert action activities, the rest of the CIA tries to be as policy neutral as possible. That is our job. We do not support a particular policy. We just inform the people who make policies. Covert action, however, is actually implementing U.S. policy. And so there's a difference there. And that can sometimes get us in trouble. For example, um, take the Bay of Pigs, okay? Covert action didn't work. Um, but one of the reasons it didn't work was because the people who were actually running the covert action um, did not talk to the analysts. The analysts at the time who were watching Cuban issues knew that if there were an, an invasion, the people were not going to rise up and support the invasion. The Cuban people actually happened to like Castro. Um, but the people running the covert action because it was kept covert did not know that. Um, and that is a problem because we have two different parts of the agency doing different things. Um, we now have rules and guidelines to hopefully eliminate those kinds of issues within the agency. Um, once a covert action, a, covert, a finding has been signed, um, one of the requirements is that the people planning the operation have to talk to the analysts and have to talk to the rest of the intelligence community, make sure we're not missing something there about how the, how the covert action would work out. Covert actions range everywhere from just propaganda things like Radio Free Europe, things like that, dropping leaflets, all those kinds of things, um, to fomenting coups and outright paramilitary actions. And they are always controversial. Um, and I would just like to note here to get it out on the table, because um, it always comes up in the Q&A session, um, the CIA has indeed attempted assassinations in the past, especially of Mr. Castro, okay? We're not good at it. <laughs> The KGB is very good. We are not. They don't work. Um, so we're not very good at it. Um, and President Ford signed an executive order back in 1976. And since then, the CIA has been forbidden to conduct any assassinations or to ask anyone to conduct one for us. It covers both of those. So we do not do that anymore, which is a good thing because we're really bad at it. Um, the other thing about covert action is um, we also have some rules now where we really have to go through a cost-benefit analysis, thinking about whether we're going to do a covert action. And that has to be actually part of the finding. It has to be listed. You know, we, yeah, we've thought about all these things. Um, the particular issue with covert action is they are meant to be, obviously, covert, which means that the hand of the United States is not known. Unfortunately, especially in today's world, that never holds true for very long. The hand of the U.S. will always become evident either sooner or later. And so when you're planning a covert action, you have to assume, okay, how bad would the blowout, blowback be if they find out about this, you know, five years from now or whatever. So we always have to keep that in mind that eventually um, it will be known that this was an action of the U.S. government. So we always have to include that when we're thinking about doing this cost-benefit analysis. The last part of the CIA, the fourth directorate, is called the Directorate of Intelligence, or the DI. And this is where analysts like me live. This is, this is the DI. And we are essentially a think tank for the policymakers. That's what we do. We're very academic. Most of us are very academically oriented. Um, we sit around and, and read information. A lot of our day is just reading information, thinking about it, putting it all together, and then writing something about it. By definition, the issues that we follow are very, very difficult and complex. 
If the president can find out all he needs to know about a particular issue from watching CNN, then we don't work on it. So by definition, the issues are complex. We never have all the information we need at the time, and therefore we will get it wrong sometimes. It's just a fact of life. We've gotten a number of them wrong. Obviously, the big one is the WMD in Iraq. We got that one wrong. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that when we were writing that, we were also writing things about what would happen after an invasion, what would Iraq be like. Um, we got that right. We talked a lot about sectarian violence and breakdown of civil order and all that kind of stuff. <coughs> Unfortunately, that, that part kind of got ignored. <laughs> um, but we did get some things wrong, and we do get things wrong. And there's a lot of reasons, and we can go into that if you want to. Um, but by definition, because these are murky issues and complex issues, we do get them wrong sometimes, and that's just a fact of life. Um, we have several different kinds of offices within the DI, within the Directorate of Intelligence. Um, some of them, like the one where I started out, are arranged geographically. They look at a particular part of the world. We, for my example, obviously, we were part of the world that looked at Russia. Other parts, we look at Latin America, what's happening in Latin America or what's happening in Africa, things like that. Um, and those people tend to have degrees, like myself, in, in area studies, um, preferably some knowledge of the language, those kinds of things. Um, we also have other offices that look at issues that transcend national boundaries. Um, they look at such things as international organized crime, um, international uh, global energy issues, humanitarian issues, things that, that cross borders. You might ask, why does the CIA, you know, we're supposed to be here protecting national security, why do we care about things like SARS or global warming? And the reason is we don't look at those issues in and of themselves. For example, global warming, other people look at, at how is that actually going to play out. Other people um, look at the SARS epidemic, where is it going, how bad is it going to be. What we look at are what are the implications for example, with global warming, we don't look at and help decide, well, the sea is going to rise one inch or two inches or whatever. No. What we do is we stand back and say, okay, if global warming is to occur, and we sometimes lay out a, several different scenarios, if it, if it is occurring, if these things happen, then what are the implications for national security? <clears throat> for example, with global warming, a lot of the reports say that in particular parts of the world there will be severe droughts. Okay, we look at that and say, okay, if there are droughts, then what does that mean? Does that mean that we're going to see wars over resources, particularly over water? Are we going to see mass migrations of people from one part of the world to another? That might um, create other issues. Um, if the people in a particular country think their, their government is not helping them deal with the issue of drought or whatever, might that bring down a government? Might it create instability? Those kinds of issues. Um, we look at issues, if there is global warming, does that mean things like tropical diseases are going to spread farther? And again, what is the implication of that? We look at the, the what would happen, um, not the actual events themselves. So that's why we look at things like SARS and global warming. Within these various offices, analysts come in a couple of different flavors. We call them disciplines. Um, political, economic, military, and leadership are the basic ones. We also have what we call methodologists. Those are the people who um, look at statistics and help the rest of us who aren't good at numbers um, when we need a little bit of rigor for that. Um, the political, anal 
political and economic analysts and the military analysts are, are pretty obvious what they do. They look at those issues <clears throat> either in their particular country, part of the world they're looking at, or some global kinds of issues. Leadership analysis is a little bit different and, and kind of interesting. Um, I, know some, I haven't done it myself, but I know some people who do it. And these people essentially profile foreign leaders, trying to understand them as people, not necessarily their policies, but what are they like as people. And they do this on a couple of levels. Um, one is just, you know, what's going on with that person's life, so that if that person, for example, is coming here for a state visit, um, you don't want our president going up to a person and saying, you know, hi, Mr. So-and-so, how's the wife, when we know the guy is just in the middle of a really nasty divorce. Okay? You just have to know. Or, for example, if, if a foreign leader is coming and, and he's got, say, teenage kids and our president has teenage kids, you want to tell our president that so they can get a little chit-chat going and get some rapport going. Those kinds of issues. Um, you don't want to serve him something at a state dinner he's allergic to. Those kinds of things. On a deeper level, we also, however, want to understand him as a person. What is his background? Where did he, where, where did he grow up? Was he rich or poor? What kind of schooling does he have? How does he think about the world? What is his viewpoint of the world? Um, and that will help us understand things like, you know, how might he jump in a crisis? We want to understand things like, you know, does he support us in public but not in private? Those kinds of issues. So that's what leadership analysts do. Um, it used to be we were just looking basically at foreign le leaders. Now we also look at other important actors, including the terrorists. We now do little biographies of them, too. Um, and the policymakers love these biographies. Policymakers, by definition, are people, people. They want to know them as, as a person. They want to be able to chit-chat with them, all that kind of stuff. And we give them the information for that. Um, we also provide them, and this is, this is the, the thing that absolutely the policymakers love, the best of everything that we do. We make little baseball cards of some of the policymakers, of the, of the foreign leaders. Um, and this they can put it in their pocket. It's, it's at the unclassified level. Some of our other ones are classified, but this they can carry around. Um, it's got the name of the person, their picture, so that you know as you go down a receiving line which one is who. Um, it's got how to pronounce the person's name, all the good kind of stuff that a politician really, really wants to know. So we do those, and that, that's what leadership analysts do. Um, and those people usually have um, a little bit of background in psychology, sociology, anthropology, something that helps them understand the person and how he lives in his culture. So that's what they do. Um, one of the things that's important to note again about analysts is that we no longer work on the same issue our whole careers. The world is just changing much too rapidly, and we just can't afford to do that. So we do tend to move around. Um, we do tend to be able to change gears when necessary and move our skills across to a new issue. Um, and I'm firmly convinced of this, that once we have the tradecraft down, and tradecraft, by tradecraft I mean how we do our job, how we validate sources, how we use material, how we think about things, how we refine our thinking. Um, once we have all of those skills, we can, we can apply it against any particular issue. Um, it just takes a little bit of a learning curve to suddenly learn about what's going on in China instead of what's going on in Russia. But that can be learned um, once you have the good skills. So that's what we do. 
Um, that's it for my little nutshell of what the CIA is and does. Um, if you want, I can talk a little bit about a day in the life of an analyst. What is it really like? What do we do all day? I see some nods. Okay, let's do that, and then we'll get into the Q&A, because I think we have time for that. Um, the first thing is we do have normal days, and we do have real lives. <laughs> um, I always get that question. Um, yes, we are allowed to do other things. Lots of us are brownie leaders and Girl Scout leaders and you know, on the board of our homeowners association, on the governing body of our churches, all that kind of stuff we do. Um, so we do have lives. Normally, we do have normal days. The trouble is when you go into work, you never know if that is going to be a normal day or not. Um, the way it works as an analyst is we have what we call an account, which is what part of the world or what the issue is that you're working on. Um, and the only difference between junior people and much more senior people is how big that account is. So you're responsible for a particular account, and you need to be responsible for two different kinds of things. Um, one is you need to be responsible for what we call the overnight traffic. All the information that you need to do your job as an analyst comes to your desktop really pretty neat. It all comes there. Secret, not secret sources, they all come there, um, and they're arrayed there. Um, we have various algorithms to help make sure that only what you need comes to your desktop out of the, the millions or billions of bits of information that come in. You get what you need. Um, so you need to go through that first thing in the morning and see, is there anything that happened overnight that the president needs to know about? And if there is, you pull it off and you go run to your boss and you tell your boss. And if that's true, then you're going to be really, really busy <laughs> and it's going to be a long day because you may end up writing something that needs to be on the president's desk the next morning. So that's the first thing you do is you go through your stuff and you see if there's anything there that you need. If there isn't, okay, then you go get another cup of coffee and you relax a little bit because at the same time, you're also working on maybe one or two longer-term projects. And then you'll spend the rest of your day working on those projects, um, talking to other analysts. We do a lot of brainstorming these days. Um, if you're starting a new project, the first thing you're going to do is call a meeting. Anybody in the building or anybody in the other parts of the intelligence community who have anything to do with that particular issue, you just call a meeting, get them in a, get them in a room, close the door, lock it, bring out the cookies, and just chat um, so that you, you tap into everybody's ideas. <clears throat> so you'll spend part of your day you know, having your own brainstorming meetings, going to other people's. Um, you'll also spend part of your day reading off on what other people write because we all comment on each other's writing. Um, we all have a little bit to add. We all think a little bit differently, so we want to capture all of that in what we put out. <clears throat> so you'll also spend your day doing that. We also these days spend a lot of time getting outside of our building um, we'll go downtown and we'll talk to other people in the intelligence community. Um, we brief the policymakers quite a lot. We put out a lot of written material, but we also brief a lot. And policymakers can be anybody from the president on down. Um, we brief on Capitol Hill a lot these days. Congress asks for a lot of briefings. Um, and just so that we don't get into trouble doing that, um, we have an office within the agency, a congressional liaison office, and they always come with us. Um, and they always either record or note carefully what was said in the meeting so that they can't come to us later and, and misinterpret what we said because we have a record of what we said. Um, so they help us do that. So we get out of the building a lot. Um, and as I said, we, we have these various rotations and all that kind of stuff. Um, but again, you never know what day is going to be a crazy day. And that's just part of the territory. Um, and we know that we do like people to have lives. So, you know, if something comes up and, and you should stay, but for some reason you absolutely can't, 
then we'll have somebody else cover for you and you'll stay instead of them some other time. So that's the CAA in a nutshell. Let's go ahead and move to, to Q&A. Um, anything is fair game. And as I said, if I can't tell you the answer, I just won't. Yes, John. But you started to talk about the threat matrix. So explain yes. what that is and how it's developed and where it's gone. Okay. We started the threat matrix very soon after 9-11. Um, it's a big, big spreadsheet. Um, it's got lots of different columns. Um, and it talks about any threats that have come in overnight. And there are a lot. A lot of them we screen out, but a lot of them end up on this threat matrix. Um, one of the things that we learned really early on is a lot of the threats that come in are actually hoaxes. A lot of them are somebody says, you know, yeah, there's this threat, and we heard them talking about blowing up the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever. They're really just trying to get back at their girlfriend or boyfriend. Had a lot of those. Um, so, but we cull through all that as best we can, and we put together this threat matrix, and this is what we talk about twice a day with the whole intelligence community and the White House. We all talk about what's on the threat matrix. Talks about what the threat is, where it's located, you know, against what kind of target, who we think the perpetrators might be, um, and also we have to talk about what is actually being done. Okay, this isn't just theoretical sit around and chat about it. This is, okay, we think there's a threat against the Brooklyn Bridge. Who's going to actually go out and check the piers of the bridge and make sure there's nothing bad on them? That kind of stuff. So that's what the threat matrix is. Um, we'll go back and revisit if we think if there was a threat and a couple of days later we come back and say, okay, now this is one of those hoaxes or whatever. We'll go back and, and tell people, okay, you don't have to worry about this one anymore. Um, so that's what the threat matrix is. It takes a lot of time and energy. Um, but it's a way for the whole community to get together and talk about these particular issues. That answer that the threat yeah, matrix? Is that just an immediate thing you do in one day, one day's threats, today's threats, yesterday's threats, tomorrow's threats? Yeah, it, it's a pretty immediate thing. Um, sometimes we'll have long, sometimes the threat will be on there for a couple of weeks. Um, we won't mention it at the meeting unless something has happened to, to you know, raise it, lower it, new information, whatever. Um, but it's usually pretty immediate stuff. Yes? For, for your foreign staff, uh, folks that collect the spies, so to speak, how long do they actually work out in the field and then how long before they retire? Um, oh, I think I forget what their retirement age is. It might be a little earlier than, than most of us. Um, normally, a rotation overseas is two years with an option for a third. Um, it can vary a little bit. If it's a dangerous part of the world, it's more like one year. Um, the folks who are in the clandestine service doing that kind of work, they spend most of their career overseas. They'll do maybe three tours overseas, then they'll come back for a couple of years, and they'll go back out and do a few more tours. Um, so they do spend most of their careers overseas. Most of them tend to do things like they'll do that when their kids are younger. When their kids are like in high school, they'll come back to the U.S. and look for a home, um, an assignment at, at home and headquarters so that their kids can finish high school to get on to college. Um, but those folks spend most of their lives overseas. But then they, like you revealing yourself as a CIA agent or a CIA person. Right. That's because I'm an analyst. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And cover gets really complicated, and I can't go into it very deeply. But you're right. You're right. It is an issue, um, and they, they basically have to live their cover all the time, all the time. No, there are jobs on the clandestine service side. Some of them do cross over. There's, there's movement back and forth. If they come back to work in the headquarters um, for the clandestine service, there are people at headquarters who support the people out in the field. 
Um, for example, some of the things that the people out in the field, well, someone has to support them, get them money, get them the spy widgets, all that kind of logistical stuff. Um, but also, if they're out in the field, they, they write reports, they, they meet with the source, and the source gives them particular information. They, they chit-chat with their source about, you know, issue X. They write it up, but it comes back to headquarters. Somebody at headquarters actually has to verify it all, turn into good English, get it sent out to everybody that needs to get that report, all those kinds of things to support the people in the field. So that's what they do when they come back. Um, some of them also, we have what we call CIA University, um, where we teach incoming people what to do. So some of them would come back and teach the next crop of agents how to do the job. Lots of possibilities. Yeah. <laughs> it's very useful. One, one of the little secrets, I can tell you a little secret here. Um, as an analyst, maybe 90% of the material that I use is open source. Most of the material that I use in my job is open source. And that varies from issue to issue. North Korea, for example, that doesn't work so well. Um, but most of it is open source. Um, and some of it is just open source information, journals, newspapers, articles, all kinds of that stuff. Um, we have a number of Contracts that we do, Rand Corporation, for example, does some work for us. If anything, that, if there's any information that we want that can be purchased or is done on the outside, then that's great. Because we'll just buy it, use it, whatever, and we use our own resources to do other things that, that we can't just use on the open, get from the open market. So a lot of it. Most, <laughs> at, at least the people who are working on, on particular parts of the world, those kinds of people who look at, <clears throat> you know, issues in Russia or Southeast Asia or whatever, most of us have the language. Um, if you don't come to the agency with it, and these days you really need a little bit of language to get hired, um, but if you don't come to the agency with it or just minimal, then we'll give you those language skills. We have in-house language teachers. Um, and we have ways, if you don't already have some in-country experience, we'll give that to you. We'll send you there. Um, so some of it you come to the agency with and some of it we develop. Um, and we do that, the language and the in-country experience, because that's really the only way to get to understand a culture. And that's what we want. We want people who can really understand whatever this part of the world is. Um, that's one reason why we like language so much, not just so that you can use the language, but so that you automatically understand. If you're reading the, the literature of a foreign country, for example, you're getting a real good feel for what the, what the culture is like. Yes? Um, they study how yes. A society, the glue of a society yes. In both in that kind of aspect and also people with an anthropo anthropological background <laughs> um, make good leadership analysts. So we one, do. The other question is two films that recently came out, Breach and Good Shepherd. Don't believe don't believe what you see on TV. Don't believe what you see in the movies. Don't believe a lot of what you read. Um, I have not read read George Tennant's book yet. I have it at home. I haven't read it yet. I don't know. I liked him. We liked him. Um, that's all I know about it. But don't believe what you see on TV. Don't believe Alias. Okay? We don't. We don't jump out of buildings. We don't jump out of airplanes. We're not Jack Ryan. You know, none of that. Okay. Sounds good, but it doesn't happen. Yes. Yes. Uh, you mentioned 9/11 and after 9/11. Um, Osama bin Laden was 
long time before 9-11. Yes. Right. And then, and the two embassies that you could go up in Tanzania and Kenya. Kenya. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, the SS code, and even before that, um, did the CIA have, uh, you don't have to answer, I'm not talking about the classified information, what was the level of the human intelligence in Afghanistan camps, Yemen, and Not good. That was part of our problem. We did not have human sources. Um, we knew something was going on, and in fact, the, the summer of before 9/11, we were writing a lot about you know something was happening. We didn't know what, we didn't know where, <clears throat> but we did not have in-country human sources. Um, we just did not, and that that was a problem. That's part of why why we got things wrong. Whether that would have actually stopped 9/11, I don't know. Um, what, what, how about the remedy? This? The remedy is for that. What what are the new steps taken to? We are now hiring a lot of people to do that kind of stuff, to try to fit into foreign countries. Um, we're hiring more and more first-generation um, ethnic kinds of, of people from, from whatever background you can think of to try to um, make sure they could blend in where they're going for. Um, the trouble is, even if you know, as we hire more and more clandestine agents to make sure that we can get that human information, um, it takes a good five years to develop somebody to do that job. Um, so we have to be really looking far ahead. And with the way things are happening so fast in the world today, we have to sit today and hire people that we think will blend in in the countries we need to be in five or ten years from now. It's hard. It's hard. But we are definitely trying to do that. It's going to take a little while. Yes? Okay, um, on the number, you, you get a twofer on the, on the number. Um, a, I don't know, and B, if I did know, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> it is a classified number. Um, we, are, <clears throat> we are hiring a lot. Um, we've hired a very, very heavily the last two years. I think there's a dip this year just because we are out of space, places to actually put people in their desks. It's going to go up next year. We're building some new buildings. Um, so we are hiring a lot. The president signed a directive, oh, maybe a year ago or so, um, that we are supposed to be increasing both the clandestine service and the analytical ranks by 50% over the next couple of years. So a lot of hiring. Also, like the rest of the government, we're losing a lot of baby boomers. Um, so that's adding in, too. Um, so we are definitely doing a lot of hiring all across the board, all backgrounds, all de any degree you can think of, we're hiring. We even have a few people with, like, music degrees. Um, some, some oddball degrees. Most of them, obviously, for analysts, are political science, history, area studies, that kind of stuff. But pretty much anything, depending on what other skills people bring. Yes? Uh, you mentioned that the uh, role of the CIA uh, as, uh, as uh, working information against adversaries. That's right. And for national security purposes. That's correct. Okay, we, we cannot do anything that's not related to national security. So, <clears throat> and this comes up every once in a while, particularly on the economic side. For example, if we find out some economic um, um, information that might help a U.S. country get a contract, maybe, we cannot give them that information. We cannot do that. 
Um, we look at allies um, a little bit, not much. Why use resources talking about your allies? Um, we want to use resources elsewhere. We do a little bit. Again, we do a little bit of leadership just so that when our president meets their president, for example, he can you know, get the rapport going. Um, if there's going to be something coming up at the UN, for example, we'll want to know how Great Britain might vote, how Germany might vote, those kinds of things. But that's about the extent. Because why, why waste the resources? Um, we do not have unlimited resources. It's another secret. Um, people think the, U, the CIA and the intelligence community have all the money we want. Yeah, not true. Um, so we have to put resources where we can get the most bang for the buck. Yes? Yeah, well, uh, I think, uh, uh, well, I'm sure CIA has a lot of the people like you who did a wonderful job. But sometimes the, the CIA doesn't really enjoy high mark in the United <laughs> States in the world. Putting it mildly. Do you think that uh, negative, uh, this, this kind of reputation for the United States government in particular and the, even the United States people in general? Um, it does a little bit. Particularly some some of the stuff that's come out, you know, about the, the Guantanamo, for example, and the detention camps. That's not good. Um, a lot of us don't think that was quite the right thing to do. Um, so that can hurt the U.S. image, certainly. Um, but again, I mean, we do what we think we need to do. What we, we've been told we need to do to protect national interests, and so we just do it um, the best we can. Best we can. Yes. Um, sometimes, usually on, on these issues, the, is the problem is not enough information. Um, <clears throat> sometimes they have a, a surfeit of information. Um, one of the, the issues that we've just recently taken care of is that we had a, the particular unit within the Pentagon making its own intelligence estimates instead of looking at the CIA. Policymakers are entitled to go wherever they want to, to get their information. We hope they pay attention to us. It's out of our hands. Um, but if they can get information from other sources, that, that's okay too. It depends on what they get and what they do with it. Um, but they're entitled to do that. We are not the policymakers. Um, we hope they look at our information. Um, our history, we try to get along well with the policymakers. Um, we actually have people who go down and brief them every day, um, deal with them all the time, work with their staffs so that we understand what their concerns are. Um, we understand what their, what their um, abilities are, for example, and, and how they actually um, process information the best. Um, for example, we try to make sure that, the, that we work closely with the president to make sure that they get the information um, and actually process it, not just see it. <clears throat> for example, um, President Clinton loved to read. He would read anything. And so we would give him a lot of material in written form because that's how we liked it. Um, Reagan did not. <laughs> Reagan liked and took in information better orally, so we gave him more briefings. So we just try to give it to them as best we can. What they do with it, it's up to them. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes. Uh, uh, American, last American ambassador in Iran, William Sullivan, he wrote a book, uh, Mission to Iran. And he writes that uh, the Iranian embassy at that time was the largest of almost all the <coughs> 
200 and some people. And there was only one person who could speak Farsi, and he was on a tour in the United States when uh, the Iranian revolution took place. And I do not know that whether, to what extent really. And he said that I had no experience about, did not know anything about Islam, and never studied Islam. They appointed me there. I went there as a good soldier. But he said that I could not find anyone, no analyst like you, to, to tell him what was Iran, what was happening in Iran. And he said I was tutored by a Pakistani ambassador <laughs> who was a historian and also he knew about Shia branch of Islam. And I, if, if, if he's right, and here's what he's writing about this, and I do not know what the situation is, so again, I'm coming to the question that uh, what, 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 um, okay, you're, you're two things. There's two things here. Okay, first of all, the embassies are run not by the CIA. Okay, State Department. Um, State Department system is such that you can be a foreign service officer and you can spend, you know, two years in Iran, and then the next two years you're going to be in Great Britain, and the two years after that you're going to be in India, and the two years after that you're going to be in Japan. Okay, so they cannot develop the expertise in country. Um, personally, I think it's kind of a bad system, but that's the way they are. Um, analysts, CIA analysts, um, who only go for short tours at the embassy, do tend to send people there who do have the background, um, do have the experience, do have the language training. I know St State Department is working very hard on that issue, trying to make sure that they have some people who can speak the language and know the culture, but just the way State Department is organized, it's very hard. Um, we ourselves are also trying to make sure that when we send people overseas, they have the language. We do make sure that they do that. Um, <clears throat> for example, if we have an analyst who's going to go to Iran, say, um, work in the embassy for a couple of years, we will go so far as to send them to a full year of language training first so that they do know the language and the culture before they get there. Um, and he goes further. I went to the CIA in, in Tehran, and he said they were getting all their information from the Sawak. Right. Think things have changed since then. Um, we try not to fall into that trap um, of making sure that, that we understand the culture ourselves um, so that we can make sure what the information is and, and, and judge it ourselves. Yes. Yes, um, yes, I'm sorry. At <laughs> uh, what point is your language cultural training a detriment to your security clearance? Um, because that's something that I've always run into, that the, the more foreign uh, experience you have, the more interaction with foreign nationals, the more of a problem it is to, to keep, maintain, and continue your security clearance it, it, and they can pull it at any time. And, um, we're trying not to. It, it depends. Um, it's still an issue. Um, having a lot of the, the background in country and the language will help you get hired, help you get the job offer. Um, <clears throat> it will t make the security clearance part take a little longer. Um, and you do have to be careful. For example, if you're in the Middle East, then that's great. You're learning all kinds of stuff. But if you become friends with somebody who's in the PLO, Okay, that's going to be bad. <laughs> so you do have to be careful about it. Um, we're trying to get past that. We're trying to get the security folks to lighten up a little bit. 
there is a problem in that we know for a fact that um, adversaries are trying to use our hiring processes to get their people in the CIA. So we do have to be careful who we hire, and we do have to look at those kinds of issues. But it'll help you get the job offer in the first place, so it's kind of a <laughs> plus or minus. Todd. <laughs> the last few years, there's been a considerable evolution in the intelligence community in terms of who the players are and what they do. As a now a director of national intelligence, as a new uh, person on the block, and FBI now getting into counterterrorism, where they didn't mess with it before, the Department of Homeland Security right. in there. What's your assessment and uh, take on all, how all that's playing out? How does it affect uh, the agency and, and the community in general? <laughs> There's two parts to that. In, in one part, one way, it's actually good. As I said, when I was working on the National Counterterrorism Center, you know, it was half CIA and half FBI, and <clears throat> it worked really well. Um, at the working level, um, at the top levels in the Bureau, we worked together well. Some of the middle managers didn't really like the CIA, so we had some problems. Um, but it worked well, and we worked very closely with Homeland Security, with Coast Guard, with whoever we could. Um, and at the working level, everybody kind of got along. Um, we liked tapping into each other's knowledge. Um, it gets a little bit difficult because technologically our systems can't talk to each other yet. That makes it really hard. Um, it also makes it a little difficult because an issue will come up and, and we're not quite sure who's supposed to work it. Um, so that makes it a little difficult. We're still sorting that out. Um, Homeland Security is still new. They're still the new kid on the block, so they're trying to figure out what their role is, what they're in charge of, what they're supposed to do. Um, they do one of the very, very important roles they play is what we're trying to do, particularly on the counterterrorism side. Um, what we need to do, if information comes in, we need to get it to the person who can use it which in that case is, you know, the cop on the beat, for example. If there's a threat against the Sears Tower in Chicago, the cops who walk that beat need to know what to look for. Um, Homeland Security has taken on that role. They're the ones who take the information, strip out the secret stuff if they have to, and get it to local police, whoever needs to know it. So that part is working pretty well. Um, but again, you know, there's some differences, and we're working that out. Um, FBI is having a little bit harder problem because they're trying to change their whole culture. Um, they're having a little bit harder problem. Again, we're working on it. Yes? Would the uh, CIA have any big role to play, like in, in Iraq, you know, like the insurgency? Would they have any assets that help the military? If we do, and again, I don't know this for sure, but if we do, then we would certainly share the information. A lot of what the CIA does now is obviously support to the military. We share the information. Actually, the satellites are run by the Department of Defense. <laughs> they do come under the Department of Defense. That's the, the, um, the National Reconnaissance Office runs the satellites, and they belong to the Department of Defense. Um, so those are run by the, the Department of Defense. But we do share all that information back and forth for different purposes. They're looking for tactical, you know, how can we go get the bad guy? We're looking at it, take the same information. Okay, how does this add to the links that we're looking at? How does this look into the bigger picture? Same information, just use it differently. Yeah. How does the NSA relate with the CIA? In other words, they collect the info. Is it just going to go into a pipe? Yep, that's basically it. <laughs> um, we get all their information. So they don't do analysis there necessarily. Right. 
They no, not much. They do a little bit. I mean, obviously, just picking what information to to provide is a, is some level of analysis, and that's what I was doing when I was up there. Um, but they do not. Their 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 job is as a collector of information, and they, they disseminate it. Other people, CIA in particular, take that information and figure out, okay, what does it mean? Yes. I think about a question a few questions ago. If knowing having known someone who was on the PLO, for example, is a career killer. Pretty much guarantees. Didn't quite say that. Something like that. It just has to be looked at. Guarantees the CIA is only going to hire people who don't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, you're complete innocent. You're good. Well, I was over there and I looked at the whaling wall, but I didn't talk to any people. Oh, good. Then you're okay. (laughs) And so the exact people you want are the ones you're being who actually have some information and some connections. It is an issue. I mean, it's not, it's not quite that, that black and white. Obviously, if, if you talk to the P, if you had somebody who's a friend who was the PLO and you didn't know it or something, and you then stopped you contact with them, it's an issue. It, it's, it's an issue. Um, we do try. That's away from each other, the same cafe. How do you know they that, that's what I was talking about when I get into the thing about the dirty sources, okay? We know that you have, if you're interested in what's going on in the Middle East, we have to have somebody who talks to the PLO. You're absolutely right. Um, it tends not to be an analyst. It tends to be a clandestine service officer, and that's his job, is to go find people in the PLO and talk to them. And then if you're doing those kinds of contacts because it's part of your job, then that's perfectly okay. We want you to do that. It's if you start to date somebody in the PLO or get buddy-buddy with somebody in the PLO when it's not part of what you're supposed to be doing that we can run into problems. known before you applied for application, way before you applied for the CIA. That's, that's a career killer. Not necessarily a career killer. It will be looked at. It will be looked at. I, For example, I use that, that um, analogy because I do know somebody in the agency who did date a PLO guy. Um, so it is, it is a real event, okay? I, I know about that. And she obviously got hired. They knew about it. She got hired. It just has to be looked at, um, and it will slow the process down. It's not necessarily a killer. It just depends. Yes? Um, you were in the CIA when the Soviet Union fell, correct? Right after. I joined in 92. Oh, you joined in 92. All right. Well, you know, it's a common refrain we hear that everyone at the CIA was so surprised and shocked that and it seems that that wasn't the case at okay. all. No, it wasn't. Look on the, the Freedom of Information Act site on the, on the CIA website. You'll find a lot of information there um, that we were, that we didn't know the day it was going to fall. I mean, you know, we didn't know that. You can't know that. There are some things that are not knowable. We had been writing for years and months in the lead up to the collapse of the Soviet Union that things were going bad. Right. We, there was one paper called Gorbachev's Looming Storm or something like that. Um, we knew things were going bad, um, but nobody can predict those kinds of events. But we knew it was going down down the tubes. Well, when you look over the horizon at Russia, you know what do you see as the greatest the greatest threat out of out of out of Moscow? Is it a renewal for empire? Yeah, that would probably be. There's there's a couple of parts to that. One is the renewal of empire, the turning um, autocratic again. Um, the other one is the energy the energy card, how they're playing the energy card, um, particularly with Europe trying to use it as a weapon to, to gain control again. Well, when you say renewal for empire, do you mean land grabbing and controlling or some other type of coercion? Either, all, both, <laughs> you name it. Um, just Russian attempts to control their surrounding space, whether it's actually you know, invading and taking over the land or it's just controlling a neighboring country because they control all the, the resources, 
particularly the energy that that country needs, you name it. Um, one thing that we always have to understand, and, and this is not condoning them, but you have to understand the Russian point of view. Um, Russia has been invaded from the West so many times and devastated so many times that from their point of view, that makes perfect sense. They are defending their national security by doing that. From our point of view, we don't like it. Um, but that's where they're coming from. And, and in order to understand what Russia is up to, we have to understand that that is their national interest. How real is that threat of, of Quite real. <laughs> Quite real. Now, where it's going to go, you know, the, these things, again, are, are kind of unknowable. But just look at what Mr. Putin's been doing. Um, you can pretty much see where the direction is. Um, just signed the, the New Deal with Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan about the oil pipeline so they can control it. That kind of stuff. Any other questions? Do you think the uh, uh, nuclear capability in Iran would be as uh, really big, significant, destabilizing uh, action in the Middle East? I don't know that much about that part of the world. That's not my area of expertise, but basically, yeah. <laughs> could have, could see a nuclear arms race within that part. Problem. That would be a big-time problem. And the problem, of course, is if Israel thinks that Iran could have nukes aimed at them, then Israel is quite likely to do a preemptive strike, and then, you know, basically all hell breaks loose. Bodes ill for mankind, as we like to put it, those big, those big issues. <laughs> yes? Well, Lord, when you've been overseas and also looking at times you've been in the United States, do you disclose the fact that you're a CIA when I When I'm overseas, yeah. no. No, we do not. No. So you're a State Department employee? State Department employee. Correct. Time for any more? Okay. Thanks very much. Hey, thank you. You can come up and ask private questions if you want to. Let me, I won't tell you the answer. I apologize.